Welcome. You're listening to In The Room, the podcast. Our host, international moderator and MC, Veda Sanasi, creates a meeting point to amplify the valuable voices of our community. From prominent icons to everyday people, In The Room is an opportunity to share their journeys, their perspectives, and boldest aspirations towards tackling global challenges. Ultimately, contributing to rewriting the definition of leadership for the 21st century. Welcome to Season 2 of In The Room, the podcast. Wow, it is hard to believe that it's only been a year since we started this podcast. In fact, when we started, I believe sometime around February 2020, the global lockdown hadn't started yet. And looking back, it certainly feels like I left behind a whole decade. But I guess it was just a very long year. And I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, are just happy that we could finally say goodbye to 2020. It was a year from which we have learned a great deal, things that will hopefully serve us well in 2021. I personally enjoyed learning from all of our guests in season one. Their lessons and insights were impactful, and sometimes just being able to converse with people who were extremely well-informed and cared about certain issues was soothing to the mind and to the soul. So as we considered our guests for season two, we thought it would be great to start with a bit of a forward outlook, you know, to try to get a sense of what's awaiting us in this new year. And we couldn't have had a better first guest for this season than the executive director for the Institute for the Future. Yep, that's a thing. Miss hmm. Marina Gorbis, to help us paint a picture of what the near future looks like. And what a picture did she paint in our conversation as we covered a whole range of topics. We debriefed the pandemic and the lessons learned. We talked about the future of education, of governance, and of health. So, as we step into 2021, do we still have a lot to be concerned about? Well, let's find out with Miss Marina Gorbis. My name is Veda Sanasi, and welcome to Season 2 of In The Room, the podcast. Well, Marina, thank you so much. Usually when I um, you know, do an episode and, and I have a guest, I usually ask them about their origin story, sort of, you know, their journey um, up until now. I'm going to ask you the same question, but in your case, I'm particularly interested in knowing how did you discover along your journey that you had an interest in, if not a passion for, the future? <laughs> So how far do you want me to go back? I mean, how, how far, far back? back you want to go? Okay, the origin story. So going way, way back, um, I uh, immigrated from what was then the Soviet Union or Ukraine. Uh, and, um, you know, I actually came as a refugee because um, I'm Jewish. And at the time, the Soviet Union basically had the agreement with the U.S. to let the Soviet Jews leave if they wanted to. So I ended up in California, in San Francisco, in the San Francisco area. I was about 18 at the time. And, you know, it was uh, very much an immigrant experience, not knowing I knew the language a little bit. Um, you know, I went to college with the help of some community you know, funding and ended up going, ended up getting a degree in Berkeley at UC Berkeley. And then um, actually after graduated, took a job 
uh, working in the same refugee resettlement agency that I went through and spent a year doing that in Austria and Vienna, which was a very good and powerful experience. Came back uh, and applied to grad school and went to the policy school at UC Berkeley. Um, I wouldn't say that I was very directed at the time in terms of knowing what I wanted to do, but policy, you know, I came out of like refugee resettlement was kind of interested in that. And the policy school was a really important experience for me because not just, you know, in terms of what I learned and how the policy school operated, but the community, the other people who were at the school and sort of expanded my interests. I, from there, um, so I actually kind of redirected my interest. I got interested in sort of international development, trade, um, and connected with technology and ended up going to SRI, um, Stan what used to be known as Stanford Research Institute, where I was doing a lot of uh, development work, organizing, kind of going into areas that were just kind of changing where change has happened, they were opening up. Um, and that was a, a great, great experience. And then I just kind of ran into um, Bob Johansson, who was at the time the president of the Institute. It sounded intriguing. I think I was getting a little tired uh, from doing being at SRI at the times. So I really wasn't uh, at all a futurist or what I would call a professional futurist. So I came to the Institute um, and started a program called um, Global Innovation Forum, where we were actually looking at sort of innovation systems, comparing Silicon Valley to Japan and Nordic Europe, which um, was really interesting. And yeah, that's kind of my origin story. I've been at the Institute now for 20 two years. The Institute's been around for 52 years. So it's quite a, a interesting place. And now I officially can say that I'm a, a futurist. I, I can wear that badge. But, you know, most of the people who are at the Institute were not trained as futurists. We all come from some discipline. And that there are certain techniques and methodologies that we use in our work that we all learn. And, you know, it's it's a bit of a combination of, you know, research and data and sort of science, if you will, and a bit of art and methodology and a tool set. And obviously, the more you do it, the better you get at it. So, um, but that's my origin story. And you mentioned the Institute and, and for the audience, um, the institute here, by the, by the institute here, you mean the Institute for the Future. And, and institute for the said, Future. It's been around yes. for 50 year, 52 years. So tell us a bit more about the institute. What does it do and what, has, what have been some of its accomplishments over those 52 years of existence? The institute actually has a much more interesting origin story uh, than probably my story. But the Institute was originally spun out of RAND, which is a large research organization, think tank. Um, it was the time when there were few, you know, it was like early days of uh, when people started to plan for uncertainty, right? Uh, so this is in late 60s, threat of nuclear war, Vietnam War going on in the U.S. So there were a lot of interest in how do you 
kind of deal with these uncertainties and can you prepare for them? So the Institute and the founders of the Institute, one of whom was a Swedish mathematician, Olaf Helmer, uh, developed various kinds of techniques for si helping people systematically think about the future. I think at the time they actually thought that they could predict the future. I think, uh, you know, in the first 10 years they were disabused of that notion. And, you know, one of the first things that we always say is that nobody can predict the future. Um, you know, you can predict sort of these point events like what's the even elections you can try to predict, right? not very successfully lately, but um, these kind of singular events. But we're interested in these very sort of big socioeconomic technological transformations that are just too complex. There are too many variables. So there's a whole host of techniques that uh, the Institute developed um, and we continue developing, you know, one of the things that the Institute is known for is kind of consistently innovating with methodologies and, you know, we borrow from a lot of academic research and academic, but then kind of add our slice to it. So uh, we do some scenario work and scenario planning. Uh, we do, you know, trend analysis and looking at signals of the future that are around us. There are lots of different things. Um, you know, the, I would say, and it's, it's interesting to be a futurist in this particular moment because this is one of those, we're kind of at ground zero in many ways with COVID and, you know, our political environment, our governance systems, climate change, all of these. And if there is a moment where we need to think about the future and um, think about what we want to build and envision what we want to build and how to get there, this is, you know, this is our futurist moment. And I believe that everybody should become a futurist or at least understand how to do this work. And increasingly, it's, you know, one of the frustrating things about being a futurist in this particular moment is you literally wake up every day to these uh, headlines of like something unthinkable happened, like the fires in California we've never seen before, uh, the kind of pandemic that we couldn't imagine. And it's, it's frustrating because it's like, yeah, people imagined it. You know, we wrote 12 years ago a scenario for pandemics that's eerily similar to what's happening now, including the fact that some of the hardest things to stop are like these social gatherings that are rites of passage, like weddings and graduations. It's, it's just eerie. So every day you wake up and go, yeah, uh-huh, thought about that, done that, been there, uh, catching up, right? And so there is a huge gap between... And, you know, it's not just the Institute, there are epidemiologists and scientists and others who've talked about it. And somehow there is this huge gap between thinking about the future and actually acting to do something about it. And, you know, we're increasingly studying that, like, what is that? Why is there such gap? But in many ways, what we're experiencing now is that result of short-termism of short-term thinking. You know, BBC actually wrote that short-termism is the greatest threat to humanity. And I think what we're experiencing now is absolutely the result of that, the fact that it's we're not somehow, there are no incentives or the incentives that are built into many of our systems is to reward short-term actions, short-term things. You know, if you're a politician, 
you're thinking about your next election, very short term. If you're in business, you're thinking about your uh, stock price, uh, your shares, very short term. So there are very few incentives in our system to think about long term and to act in the long term. Plus, you know, future generations are not very well represented in our voting systems, in our organizations, they, they don't have a voice. So in some ways, we're the voice of that future in all of those domains and in all of those conversations. You mentioned the pandemic, and I want to come back to it in a second, but before we make that switch, how, how do I explain to my 10-year-old nephew who a futurist is and what a futurist does? Um, I, I think 10-year-old, I would say, hey, do you think about the future? And ask them that, like, and how far, what is the future to you? Is it one day? Is it a month? Is it 10 years? And it changes, you know, as people grow up. And, um, you know, we did this work with um, kids who were in, like, um, elementary school, uh, or they were actually in high school or entering high school, and the, all they were thinking about is like the next step, their college, like where are they going to go to college? So I would say, do you think about the future first? And then how far do you go? Well, you know, there are people who actually do it as a profession. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> and you can learn those techniques too. You know, and give the give him uh, a little scenario. I don't know if you saw this. We, my colleague Jane McGonagall, who is a pretty well-known games designer researcher, she developed this game five minutes into the future, where um, she asks people. She gives them a scenario, and say, "Imagine you wake up, and this is a world you are living in. Like there are no communications. You know, your your." Phones are not working, your computer, your internet is down. What do you do? The first five minutes and ask them in, with a lot of specificity to ask, like, where are you? What's your first move? Who is around you? How do you feel? All of these things, it's called specificity training. It's a really great um, thing to try, particularly with young people. Give him some kind of a scenario that seems far away and ask him to live it the five minutes. All right, I'm actually going to give this a try. Um, <laughs> in March this year, Marina, I had you as a guest on a webinar I was hosting, and we were discussing sort of the new state of the world as most of the world was on lockdown. And as we close off the year 2020, and, and this being the last episode, um, before we step into 2021, I obviously cannot miss the opportunity to reflect on the past year with you. Um, but first, I'd like to reference an essay that you wrote um, titled the future as a way of life, in which you argued that the only way to effectively deal with black swan events is through a massively public endeavor to envision and make the future. Well, let's start with the obvious uh, swan in the room here. W what is a black swan event? And is this pandemic yeah. that we're living a black swan event? Uh, there are all kinds of names. I'm not a huge believer in these black swan events because it presupposes that they were completely unexpected and they're crazy and you couldn't imagine them. And I think there's like very few events like that. Most of them have been imagined. Um, 
So it's, I think some people are calling it white elephant in the room, which <laughs> is like, we've talked about it for a long time and all of that. I wrote that essay on, um, after the passing of Alvin Toffler, who wrote this famous book, Future Shock. And we actually, in the origin documents for the Institute, we found a letter from Alvin Toffler to Olaf Helmer, who was at the time they were founding the Institute, when the, the, there is a connection. And he wrote, before the future shocks, he wrote this essay where he argued we are, so this is again, late 60s, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, um, a lot of kind of social upheaval. He wrote this um, essay talking about that, you know, people are likely in these kind of moments People, just like we have a culture shock when you move to a different culture, right? I've certainly experienced it. And if you moved into a different culture, you know what that feels like, where you don't know all the norms, you don't speak the language as well, you don't understand a lot of things. So you're like a, you know, alien being in, in this culture. In a similar way, people are likely to experience what he calls culture, um, future shock, where all these things, like we are in a future shock right now state, right? These things that maybe futurists talked about and all of that, it's like part of our lives, right? And it's a, it's a pretty traumatic event. If you look at just the numbers of uh, mental health crises in the country, in addition to the just a real health crisis, you know, physical health crisis, there's a huge mental health crisis because all of these sort of foundational things that we relied on, all of a sudden they're up for grabs, right? So, you know, our supply, we don't have enough masks and uh, protective equipment in like the mightiest country in the world with the largest companies manufacturing. How is that possible? Our hospitals don't have enough, have enough hospital beds. Who would have thought of that? Yeah. So we're kind of really experiencing physically and mentally this future shock. And he thought, and I agree, that to prepare for that, we can do something to minimize the shock, which is really to make the whole discipline and the way of thinking massively public. So train people in this, have them, you know, part of their education, uh, part of how they operate in the world. So, and I, I do believe that, that, you know, having been at the Institute for over 20 years, I've obviously become a huge convert <laughs> into this. I, I really think there is something, you know, if, if I were, if I were in charge of the world, or even in the U.S., I would change the whole education system around kind of how we train people to think about the future, because we live in a very complex world, and it's very hard to operate in this world and to figure out the connections. And so, um, so I wrote that essay to say this is this moment where we need to, like his legacy was never fulfilled. He had this dream, and in many ways the Institute is kind of one of the uh, organizations that followed that dream and uh, tried to do this. But we need to make future thinking much more massively public. And there is another sort of um, part of this that's important. Who Who is involved in thinking about the future, right? That there are certain people a lot of future visions, like if you're living in Silicon Valley, 
you can go to any startup and they'll tell you their great vision for the future, right? And they, they believe and they have this agency, they think, to shape other people's future. And they're doing it, right? With the help of a lot of money and, and other things and networks and other things. But, you know, there are people who feel like they are creating the future and there are other people who feel like this future is forced upon them. That's not their future. So part of this also, and this is something we've been working on, is to expand who is participating in conversations about the future. Who is Who has that agency and who is empowered to really communicate their visions of the future? Because, you know, who is empowered to have that kind of imagination? I think that some of the things we're seeing in terms of kind of divisiveness and polarization in the U.S. and in other parts of the world is that there are some people who feel like they see themselves in this future and there are other people who don't see themselves. That's not their future. It's not necessarily what they imagined or they've never been asked or have the power to shape that future. And, and you mentioned a massively public endeavor and almost a year later now, if not a year later since the pandemic started, what's your assessment of the public endeavor to tackle this pandemic? Have we done well? Have we failed? Have we passed? Well, um, you know, here's the thing about the pandemic. There is there is a pandemic that's happening right now. Obviously, depending on where you live, some people have handled it a lot better. I would say U.S. gets an absolute F mm -hmm. in, in dealing. And that's been a huge revelation, I think, for a lot of people. It's like, you know, there's this um, historian of science of uh, pandemics, Charles Rosenberg, and he compares pandemics to dramas in four acts. Act one is progressive revelation, where these things are just like, oh, we don't have enough supplies. Our, our um, supply chains are pretty brittle. Uh, we don't have enough nurses. We don't have beds. You know, all of these stuff, things are being revealed. Uh, so we've gone through this progressive revelation. I think we're kind of closing it because a lot of things have been revealed. Then this act two is random response, where you're trying all these things. It's like, oh, wipe your surfaces. Don't need to wipe surfaces. It's in the air. It's not in the air. It's indoors. It's outdoors. You know, close this, open that. All of these random responses. I think we're kind of getting out of that stage to coherent public response, which I hope, you know, the next six months and beyond, it's like we know what's happening we know how to deal with this. We understand it. And now we just need to bring coherence to this. So it's, you know, when you open one area and they don't wear masks, they travel to another area. So we need to, and that I think has been kind of the hardest thing is that we don't have this we sense anymore. We don't, it's like my freedom against your health and my freedom is more important. We, we've kind of defined freedom and I'm talking about the U.S. context particularly. Uh, we need to regain the sense of that mutuality that we're all in this together. If there is something, one thing that this pandemic has revealed is that there's no such thing as private health. You know, I'm only as healthy as a homeless person a block down from me, you know, because 
this, these things connect us and we are connected. So let's acknowledge that, that there is no such thing as your individual freedom if your freedom impinges on my health or my, my freedom or all kinds of other things. So hopefully we're moving into the stage of the public response. And uh, the fourth stage is just doing an assessment of what just happened. It's like a bomb exploded, right? And we need time to assess why did this happen? Who is responsible? How do we prevent this from happening again? I think there is a fifth stage, unfortunately, which is amnesia. We tend to just kind of forget about this and go on in our about our business. So I hope that we create a lot of reminders of this, like memorials. You know, we have hundreds of thousands of people dead in the U.S. and God knows by the end of the year, it may be half a million people. That is like worse than any wars that the U.S. has ever experienced or anything in our history. It's, it's just unbelievable. So I hope we create, that we don't forget, that we create memorials and mementos and we document these things and stories so that they're passed on to two generations. So I feel like, you know, what, what I excited about, you know, and you have to be an optimist if you are in the future space, because even the idea that there is a future is a hopeful thing, right? So you have to believe that there is a future and that you can shape that future, that it's not preordained, it doesn't, doesn't come out from high above. We all have agency in shaping this collective future. So I'm excited about we've gone revelation, through revelation, we've gone through random response, we're going into public response, and hopefully, you know, we'll also derive lessons from it and learn from it and not forget it. Mm-hmm. And now with, with the vaccine that, that's been found, do you think this is it? This is the end of the pandemic? Um, you know, I'm not a <laughs> epidemiologist. I would go to Dr. Fauci. I, I think we're going to see, you know, gradual winding down of the pandemic um, when and how and unevenly distributed, all of that. But yes, there, it's, a, it's a really interesting moment because people see the end of the tunnel and yet at the same time we're living the worst moment of it right now. So it's it's really hard. It's it's very hard on a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But from your perspective, th- th- is this vaccine sort of the ultimate breakthrough in the health sector, um, in, in in the way it prepares us for potential future pandemics, or is there still a lot of work that still needs to be done to really sort of, um, you know, um, keep us safe in in the future? Yeah, I think that obviously it, the success depends on how many people get vaccinated and what kind of disinformation and misinformation uh, people will believe in. Uh, you know, there's obviously going to be things we're going to be finding out. Like today, um, there was um, something reported about people with extreme allergies having a reaction to the vaccine. So those are kind of things. It doesn't seem to be fatal. or But, you know, there's things that we're going to still be um, finding out. I think the exciting thing about this is that actual method they use to develop the vaccine, and that gives you a lot of hope for the future in terms of dealing with pandemics or other kind of massive sort of health events. So there's something, and the fact that, you know, so many 
uh, companies and efforts are actually succeeding in developing the vaccine uh, has been really encouraging. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's the last pandemic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely yeah. not. Oh, no. <laughs> it's, I mean, if we're smart, we'll take this as a lesson. It's like, you know, it could have been a lot deadlier. It could have been a lot worse. So if we don't take this seriously as something, you know, there is a reason why we're experiencing this, right? Where a climate change is driving a lot of um, changes, ecological changes. We're moving into territories, wildlife territories, where we're interacting a lot more with wildlife. You know, our food supply is, we're, you know, increasingly looking from sources of protein, which is another. So there is a lot of, this is why this pandemic was predictable and people have talked about it. I remember when we talked in March, um, I had referenced a, a Time magazine article in which the author was arguing that we need to stop thinking about healthcare in national terms and instead looked at it from a global um, level. It doesn't seem to me that we, we even remotely close to that. Well, what's your take on this one? Do you, do you agree with this perspective? And, um, and I, I do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, WHO, is their charter is precisely to do that. Um, how it's doing it, that's a different story. But yeah, I think these kinds of, because of travel, uh, because it's very hard to contain these kind of viral diseases in one place. Mm -hmm. um, of course, each epidemic and each virus is different. But um, yeah, I think health is a global phenomena. Uh, but not only health, capital flows is a global phenomena. Capital is moving all around. You know, we're moving all around. People are moving all around. Work is moving all around because now you can hire people, well, in all over the place in Bangladesh and the Philippines to do work. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think this is one of the big, I think, tension points for us in the next climate, obviously, is a global phenomenon. It, you can't contain it in one area. But we don't have any um, well-functioning global structures to regulate that or to... I think we're going to develop those. We're beginning the conversations about like the money flows and regulating those and definitely health is another one. So how we do it, I think this is a big, we're connected more and more and yet we don't have the governance structures that operate in, in the way that acknowledges that. Okay, I would like to now shift the focus a little bit, um, a bit more towards the future, which is obviously um, your area of expertise. And I want to um, reference uh, a quote um, where you said, to paraphrase Margaret Mead, we are all immigrants to the future. None of us is a native in that land. The very underpinnings of our society and institutions, from how we work to how we create value, govern, trade, learn and innovate, are being profoundly reshaped. We are all migrating to a new land and should be looking at the new landscape emerging before us like immigrants, ready to learn a new language, a new way of doing things, anticipating new beginnings with a sense of excitement, if also with a bit of understandable trepidation. There's obviously a lot to unpack mm -hmm. here, but let me start with this. Why the use of the word immigrant? 
Well, obviously, it very much resonates with me because that's a personal experience. But I'm also, you know, one of the things, uh, one of the methodologies we use at the Institute is um, we call it signals, where on the one hand, you can't start thinking about the future without understanding the past. And in every project, in every endeavor we undertake, we start with how did we get here? What were the choices and decisions made and why were they made? And because, you know, Mark Twain has this famous quote, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. They're patterns. This is not the first pandemic that humanity gets, has gone through. And there are a lot of patterns. So when we think about like post-pandemic futures and the work that we've been doing, we started with that. What are those patterns? Um, but then you have to look at, okay, well, history doesn't repeat itself, right? And so there's another quote from William Gibson, who is a science fiction writer, who says, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. So how do you we have a lot of data about the past and historical data, but we don't have any data about the future. There's no data about the future. There are no facts about the future, only fictions, right? So how do you then go about thinking what's possible or what's desirable? So we look for signals, these things that are around us today that are small signals of something bigger. So it's something that may be on the margins, it may look weird. It may be a new uh, scientific discovery. It may be um, some new usage pattern, or it may be a new technology, or it may be some new social norm that evolves. So a lot of our work, once we are past the historical analysis, is scanning and looking for those signals, right? And then from there, you kind of say, and they look weird a lot of times, these signals. Um, but um, they tell you kind of the story. And so we use it as a way for us to sh to then think about, well, what's possible? What are the big, like, is this a signal or noise? Is this important or not? Is this durable? What is the larger story that um, they're telling? Uh, I learned it from a colleague who is a journalist, that the difference between tide, waves and tides, right? Waves are what you see on the horizon. They come and go, they disappear. So that's a signal. You know, it may be a new startup, but hey, it's exciting, but it may disappear. But underneath it, there is something that's bigger that's enabling that startup. A lot of things that we see as innovations today in Silicon Valley were failures from 10 years ago or 15 years ago that get resurfaced because there's some something else has happened. And so difference between these tides and waves. And, you know, a lot of times um, people think about the future as basically continuation of the past, right? And so when you systematically think about the future, you have to be able to envision a very radically different future, right? And this radically different future, you have to approach it just like you're entering a new land. You have to be asking, why is this happening? You know, what does it mean? Who is doing it? Why? All of that. And kind of using new language and new set of terms. I do think that some of the divisions that we're seeing are very much tied to kind of people who want to preserve the past, whatever, because it's safe. You know, it may not have been great, but it's safe. 
right? We know it. We've been living like this. It's okay. We want to preserve it. And then being afraid of the future. And so part of the process, I think, also of thinking and, and you know, really um, engaging in this process is to sort of get some of the fear out and think of it and create some sense of hope and possibility in this. I think a lot of people who are, you know, on the side of this preserving the past, I don't know, I, I wish we could do more future thinking with them as a way to bridge that. It may be a dream. And is that, is that, is that fear? Is that what you meant when you said anticipating new beginnings with a sense of excitement, if also with a bit of understandable trepidation. Is that fear understandable? Or do you see, I sometimes feel like all, a lot of this fear is just like completely irrational. Um, but what, what, <laughs> what are we looking at? Yeah, um, I do think it's understandable because, you know, stability is one of those things that humans value. And, um, you know, some people are always seeking novelty. Uh, and excited by then they get bored right but a lot of people they really want stability um, even that stability was kind of shaky but it's still something they understand and know so i i do think that and there are potential threats on the horizon i'm not diminishing that you know you you can't ignore the potentially really scary and negative scenarios. And you need to think about those, uh, like this pandemic, um, and because you want to prepare. There are two sort of um, goals of future thinking. One is explore the possibilities and be prepared, right? And the other one is think about possibilities and envision, imagine what you want to build. So shape it and start shaping it in the desirable direction. You mentioned futures thinking, and I had heard you mention that in the past as well. I'm, I'm an educator, and in, obviously in education, we're constantly talking about 21st century skills. And, and you've mentioned futures thinking as one of the essential 21st century skills. Um, tell us a bit more, what, what is futures thinking? I think you've already made a case for why it is important, but how do you teach that skill? I, I think, first of all, we do teach people futures thinking, so you can find out a lot more and develop a lot of different um, techniques for doing this. But let me just sort of outline some of the basics of what I think is futures thinking. It's about understanding systems and complexity. It's about, so when you're thinking about, for example, future work, right? It's not economists will look at like labor statistics and labor data and all of that and demand. Um, anthropologists would look at the experience of what is work like. Historians will look at historically how did we get, we didn't always work through large organizations. That doesn't mean we were sitting around doing nothing, right? So each lens adds dimensions to this conversation. And at its best, future thinking brings all of those perspectives together so that it broadens, it kind of complexifies the conversation, but it also really underscores these complexities of, you know, other things are possible historically, we've done things differently. You know, there's data that support certain trends. There's people on the ground that you talk to about their experiences. Um, 
you know, there are technologies who are building certain technologies that transform. And in our work, we bring all of that together. So you need to be looking at a problem. And that's one of the frust frustrating things in a lot of education. People specialize. And I'm not saying that I'm against specialization. You need to go deep into certain areas. You know, I wouldn't want a surgeon quoting just poetry and not <laughs> being able to do uh, surgery. Um, so you you do need, but you need these this breath to when you're looking at complex social issues, you need to bring this level of complexity. And to me, it's kind of the best thinking. So, as I said, I would love to remake education so that students get that sense of sense-making, right? It's making sense of the world and where they are. Um, so that's one thing. Then the other dimension that's important is that temporal, what we call temporal bandwidth, that you, we're all living in a particular moment, and you have to be able to connect that moment to the past and the future. So you you have to, to systematically think about the future. You need to be a historian, and you need to be understand the present, and you need to have those tools to think about the future. And, and again, bringing diverse lenses to the conversation. So that, to me, is some of the really some of the pillars of future thinking that to me is not just about future thinking it's about good thinking it's about good you know sense making however critical thinking however you want to call it um those are kind of essential skills one thing that we have certainly noticed um with with the pandemic and the lockdown that many education institutions have been forced to embrace um, online and blended learning models, um, even the traditional ones that we've you know, seen resisting it for a long time. Um, have we now gone past the point of no return when it comes to the role and the place of tech in, in education? Um, or could we reverse and go back to the old days? Um, and relatedly, what are some other inevitable trends that you see um, in, in the education space? You know, I do think that kind of integrating technology and at the same time finding new uses for technology, because I think we're also really realizing limitations of this medium um, and discovering new things that we can do with them. I was just at a school event that used to be held in person and it's a big deal. And of course, it wasn't the same online, but they reached so many more people, you know, and, and participated in different ways and all of that. You know, when the f MOOCs first sort of gained prominence, we wrote this paper, uh, it's not about MOOCs. It's, it's, it's not about that. And the conversation was, oh my God, all the universities and colleges will go away. We're all going to be online. We can all learn that. And we basically said, no, that's not going to happen because learning is social, you know, you, and there's huge limitations in this medium as a social medium, right? And so much of what we do is in these interactions um, that are in person, you know, and there's also chemistry involved. Literally, we sense each other in different ways and all of these senses that are being removed from this medium. So I do think that something is happening in terms of people are starved for social contact. They understand the limitations of that. So if anything, it's also proved a lot of limitations of this medium. 
but it also suggested new uses. So if you are an educational institution, you really need to kind of step back and say, what did we learn from this experience? Um, in other settings, similarly in healthcare, uh, you know, we've been talking about telehealth for 10 years, but the adoption was really, really low. And all of a sudden, millions of people are doing their health appointments and visits online. And it seems to be working really well. So you, you won't be able to take it back, right? But there are certain things that you can't do. So it's, it's kind of nuanced and you need, I think, um, probably you, everybody needs to step back and assess and see what, what changes mm -hmm. for them. But I do think that after this, uh, experience people are going to be so starved for social contact uh i think we're going to see like a huge spurt it doesn't mean that everybody's going to go to college and application i'm not saying that because there are other things that are going on sure. particularly in the surely u.s economics matter as well and we're seeing that there could be a model now where much cheaper accessible all you need is connectivity and a device right right Something else that we've seen um, a lot recently, especially this, this year, is, is the rise and the acceleration of the fight for social justice. What's your take on that one? What does that mean for, for us, for the world, for the future? I think that's a very positive development. I think it's another one of those revelations, like, you know, uh, people always, people who were in those communities and discriminated against and suffered, they, they knew it, but now it came into the open so it's it's a much bigger conversation um so i think that's a very positive thing and i think like w the other thing is that people are finding new identities like indigenous identities for example that are not just in the u.s but they cross the whole continent you know and people are finding those new ways of identifying and creating communities. It's something that we needed to do. Um, and I hope that it's just the beginning of that. Um, unfortunately, you know, all of these things, they come in waves. And the U.S. is a perfect example where, you know, we had reconstruction and things were going swimmingly. And then there was a total retrenchment, right? And then civil rights. And we were all hopeful. And uh, here we had basically went back not to the same thing but you know here we are again um and i think the good thing about it is that we're looking at the kind of institutional infrastructure that drives that that drives you know brutality that drives discrimination that drives and there's um there's a kind of new alliances around it and i think it's really really encouraging mm -hmm. Um, you also have a book, um, in your book, uh, The Nature of the Future, Dispatches from the Social Structured World. You talk quite a bit about um, changes in technological infrastructure. What are, what are a few changes that you see coming that, that would be good for us to be aware of? Well, the, the kind of things I wrote about in the book, and, you know, this was in the early days of, uh, this was almost like the book was published in 13, so it's been a while. There was a lot of hope about these technologies that are enabling us to connect together and collaborate and all of that, that we could be doing collectively all kinds of things that were impossible for individuals to do or organizations 
applications, you know, like open source software and various kinds of commons-based and mutual mutuality-based uh, efforts. Uh, but I also kind of sounded an alarm that it can go the wrong way because some of these things can be privatized and basically you end up with digital feudalism. I think we ended up much more in digital feudalism than we... I mean, they're both. They're obviously things like Wikipedia, but that's one of the few examples that people quote all the time where it was incredibly successful and it is an incredible incredible resource that's been created uh, by communities uh, and there are other things uh, like that but you know the kind of platforms that were created for people to collaborate and do all of that they've ultimately been privatized and sold to advertising basically so we end up in this kind of digital feudalism where, you know, we're all working for Facebook or Twitter because we're contributing content and we get some something out of it, social connectedness, all these other things, but we don't get money out of it. So um, I think we're still at that point where now that revelation is also out there. And so hopefully we need to get to fixing that or developing other platforms that are much more open, much more public, that are not privatized, um, you know, that are run very, very differently where we're not a product. Mm -hmm. Marinas, thank you so, so much for your time for this conversation. But before I let you go, I'm going to ask you to use your crystal ball that allows you to see into the future and tell us... Why do we have reason to be optimistic? Give us maybe just two or three reasons why we have to be optimistic and we have reason to be optimistic about the future. You know, what's been holding me through this period and what I always, it's just going out into the nature and it's an amazingly beautiful, magical world. Whether you go to the ocean or you just go and see a tree and just focus on that. This is a magical world, right? And this gives me hope that there are enough people who care about it. You know, what gives me hope really is the people that I know that are all working on this and that all want to preserve this magic and beauty that we are passing through. Thank you. And being able to talk to people like you who spend their time to you know make sure that um, we're thinking about a better world and and advising you know the the right people to make uh, good decisions and and make sure that we have a we're leaving behind a better world for for the future generations we are very thankful thank you so much for your work marina and thank you for your time um, uh, to talk thank to you me. great to talk to you Cheers. thanks bye-bye bye-bye i hope you have enjoyed listening to this conversation between marina and i as much as I enjoyed interviewing her. I walked away with several powerful and important insights. But by the time I was done with this conversation, I couldn't help but remember a quote from last season from an interview I did with Ebele Okobi when we discussed the global social justice and the Black Lives Matter movements. Ebele said, and I quote, I am a prisoner of hope. If I cannot hope, there is no point in going on. It cannot be that the world as it is is the same world that will pass on to my children. Because of that, I have to have hope until I die. We have no right not to hope. 
If we look at people who came before us, giants on whose shoulders we stood on, there are moments in history when we can see bright spots. If people who were enslaved, who were murdered, had hope, how dare we remain hopeless? So, as we start this new year, allow me to remind all of us to never cease to be hopeful. I wish all of our listeners a happy new year once again, and I wish us another year of continued growth, courage, strength, and resilience as we breathe through 2021 with hope. Join us next time in The Room as we co-create the journey to enable your life's mission.